Genesis 45. Genesis chapter 45. This afternoon we want to look at chapter 45, and I am Joseph, and uh, we're going to once again look at the life of Joseph, which the last part of Genesis is what it's covering here, and so uh, we're up to chapter 45 and beginning in verse 1. So let's read uh, the first five verses here of Genesis 45. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him, and he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard, and Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves, that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. You know, every story has a climax. Every book that's written, I think, and every movie that's ever been made, has some point in it where there's a climax. There's one moment in that story when everything seems to come into focus and the story begins to make sense. Even the Bible stories have a climax. The story of Job, for instance. What what would you think the climax of that story would be? Does the climax come when Job prays for his friends? And God restores Job, giving him twice what he had before. You find that in Job 42, verse 10. That could be a good climax. Uh, Does the climax come in chapter 38 to 41 when Job gives, uh, uh, God gives Job a revelation of his power and his purposes? Or maybe is the pinnacle of Job's story found in his swelling words found in Job 19, verses 25 to 27, where it says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth. That's a great verse. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. That seems like it'd be a good place to be a climax for Job. You know, I think we could make a good case probably for any one of these above, but I think really the climax comes very early in the story of Job, found in chapter 1. As Job experienced the loss of everything, his children were dead, his wealth and his possessions were gone, and that very moment we're allowed to see the very heart of Job in action. His response to his calamities set the tone, so to speak, for the rest of the book. And when the bottom falls out, Job falls to the ground, and he goes before the Lord, and he says, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, 
and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, we've been studying the life of Joseph for several months, really, I think now, and the story, I think, has a climax as well, and we I just read it this, uh, this afternoon here, verses 1 through 5. It's one of the most dramatic moments of all of history. You see, in these verses, the moment we've been building toward uh, takes place. And Joseph reveals his true identity to his astonished brothers. I, I don't want to do a disservice to the text here this afternoon, but I would like for us to see that we can see Jesus right here in this climactic scene. We can see the Lord Jesus here. We don't see his name. Uh, It doesn't talk about Jesus as such. But in this moment, when Joseph reveals his true identity, I think we see a parallel with how Jesus reveals himself to those he would save by his grace. You see, the real climax of any life is not when we become a success in this world. It's not when the children are born. It's not even when we become grandparents. And that's a wonderful thing, to become a grandparent. That's not the climax, though. The real climax of any life is that moment in time when Jesus Christ reveals himself to a lost sinner and he saves that sinner's soul. That's the climax. Everything in a child of God's life leads up to and flows out of that moment. So in this encounter between Joseph and his brothers, I want us to get a glimpse of the Lord Jesus. And I want to point out a few parallels between Jesus and Joseph. First of all, there's a parallel in his knowledge. There's a parallel in his knowledge. Notice, Joseph knew his brothers a long time before they knew him. When they first arrived in Egypt, Joseph knew who they were. He recognized them, but they did not know him. It says back in Genesis 42, verse 8, And Joseph knew his brethren, brethren, but they knew him not. Now Joseph knew Benjamin as soon as he laid eyes on him. He hadn't seen him for, what, 20 years or so? But he still knew him. He knew Judah and Reuben and Simeon and Levi and all the rest. He knew them, but they had no idea who he was. To them, Joseph was a mysterious Egyptian ruler. They would not know who he was until he revealed himself to them. And when he said these words, I am Joseph. See there at verse 3, their eyes were finally opened and they saw him for who he was. Now it's an amazing thing, but lost sinners do not know God. You know, people really don't know know God. Oh, they know the name or they know of God, but they cannot recognize Him even though He's their own Creator. They do not know Him. They cannot know Him until He first opens their eyes. Lost men are dead to Him. And the Bible is very clear about this. Men do not know God. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Even when God 
robed himself in humanity and was born in Bethlehem, the people around him did not recognize him. John says it this way, he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. Men cannot see him even though he is all around us. He's visible in every blade of grass, every star in the heavens, a drop of grain, in sunrise and sunset. I'm not teaching pantheism here, but I'm saying he's the creator of all that. Mankind would never know him until he reveals himself to them. They're dead to him. They're blind to him. And while men may not know him, God intimately knows every man. Psalm 139 and verse 1 says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. My, thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but O Lord, lo, o Lord thou knowest it altogether. You see, God knows every word we say while it's even yet a thought in our minds. He knows us deeply and profoundly and intimately. He knows what we think. He knows where we go. He knows what we do. He knows what we feel. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Some people will come to church and maybe hear a preacher preach and the preacher will hit on their sins and talk about some secret thing they do. Then they get angry for some reason because they think someone told the preacher. No, God knows what's in the heart of man and he reveals what the sinner thought was in secret. You see, there are no secrets with God. He already knows all about us. And the brothers of Joseph had already confessed their sin one to another, but they did not know that Joseph knew it too. Joseph knew what was in their hearts. And he was in the process of bringing it all to light. And we may think we've buried some sin or something from, from sight, but we may believe that it's our secret. But listen, God knows where all the skeletons in our life might lie. And in time, he's going to expose them unless they're dealt with in repentance and confession. So like Joseph... Jesus knows the sinner long before the sinner ever knew him. There's another parallel. There's the parallel in his love. Joseph loved his brothers long before they ever loved him back. In fact, the last time they saw Joseph, as far as they were concerned, they hated him. They wanted him dead. And these boys had not seen Joseph in over 20 years. And as far as they were concerned, he was gone and dead forever. There was no love in their hearts for Joseph. And yet as God worked in their hearts and on their consciences, they came to a place where they regretted their past actions. He kept working on them until they reached the place where they actually repented of their sin against Joseph. Now they did not recognize Joseph, they did not love him, but Joseph loved them. He was busy working acting out his love for them, even though they could not see it. His love is seen in what, in how he breaks down Judah, for instance, and 
Judah, as Judah pleads for Benjamin, and he's moved with the, his love for his brothers. That's a very touching story. Here's Joseph, separated from his family over 20 years. He may have wondered if he would ever see them again. And then out of the blue, one day, here they are. Joseph must restrain himself and keep his emotions bottled up until right, the right moment comes and he's so filled with love for these men, his brothers, and especially for Benjamin, that he has to go and find a place to, to weep. This is a great love. Do you know what? It pales in comparison to the love Jesus has for the lost. Jesus came to Israel as their Messiah, as their Redeemer, but they refused to have either one. And yet, Jesus, we find, weeps over them. He longs for them to be saved. Joseph's love for his brethren was great, but our Savior's love for his 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 sheep is boundless. His love caused him to die on the cross. And I'm so thankful this afternoon for God's boundless, matchless, eternal, saving love. Joseph loved his brother even when it seemed that he was acting toward them in a hateful way. He spoke to them harshly, remember. He accused them. And then he places a heavy demand upon them and he imprisons one of them. Told the rest to go home and bring back the youngest brother as proof that they were telling the truth. And then, as we saw last week, he had his own silver cup placed in Benjamin's sack to break the last of their self-confidence. And from our perspective, and from the perspective of the brothers, his actions were anything but loving. Yet as harsh as his actions seemed, Joseph did all these things out of love. If he had hated his brothers, he would have left them alone and allowed them to go to hell. And when you are lost and life turns against you, it may seem like God is out to get you. You know, you've heard people say, why would a loving God allow this to happen or that to happen? In reality, God is acting in love. He may use death. He may use a cancer. He may use a tragedy. He may use some other means to awaken your heart to his need, to your need. And if he does this, it's because he loves you and he wants to save you. Whatever God uh, means God uses to drive the sinner away from the sin and into the arms of Jesus is an act of love. And I'm so thankful this afternoon. I praise the Lord that He loved me in countless ways before I ever came to know Him. I believe He loved me before I was born. I believe He loved me uh, uh, before I ever was a thought. Thank God for his love for us. Thank God for his love for sinners. There's a parallel in his knowledge. There's a parallel in his love. And thirdly, there's a parallel in his salvation. Now this really is an amazing parallel. Joseph saved his brothers before they ever knew that he had saved them. 
Everything that had taken place in their lives, in the lives of these brothers up to this point, was God working to bring them to a place of repentance and salvation. They had been brought to a place of confession and repentance, but they were still filled with a fear of judgment. And they have, they have been saved, but they were unaware of it. They're still afraid as they stand before Joseph. And they're sure that he's about to act out of his vengeance and judgment in their lives. I want you to consider the means that God uses to bring men and women to the place of salvation. He might use, as he did in this case, physical physical means. Uh, He sent a famine. He subjected them to harsh words and hard treatment. They were accused of being spies. They were thrown into prison. They were given proof of God's presence when they heard our return from their first trip to Egypt and found their money in their sacks. He used the physical need. He used that famine. Now Joseph had worked in their lives to create a necessity for them to return to him and face him again. So he imprisoned Simeon and and he demanded that they return with Benjamin. They could not return to business as usual. They were moved by the kindness of Joseph toward them. Their self-confidence was destroyed when that silver cup was found in Benjamin's sack. They did not see it as at the time, but these were the means that God used to bring them to a place of repentance. Everything they thought was against them. And yet God was actually working to bring them to himself. And he uses all their tragedies to draw them to salvation. So it is in our lives. I was saved in 1960. Well, that was a long time ago. June of 1960. Vacation Bible school. Now, as far as God was concerned, I was saved before the foundation of the world, but Ephesians 1.4 says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Before I even had an existence in the world, I was already in the heart and the plan of God. He had chosen me, provided for my salvation. And when we get saved, then God is really completing that process that he began back in eternity. You know, just look back on your own life this afternoon. Consider the events of your life before you came to Christ. Can you not see the hand of God working? Directing your path to bring you to Him? I think if you honest, are honest this afternoon, you can say, yes, I can see how God was doing this and that. And, and I, you know, like I said earlier today, there aren't really any accidents with God. We don't just come here or there, or go this way or that way by chance. It's the grace of God. It's the mercy of God. It's the love of God. We deserve hell. We deserve judgment. And yet God in His grace and His love patiently drew us unto Himself and brought us to the place of salvation. You see, your salvation was not an accident. Your salvation was a culmination of, pl- of the age's old plan. And then there's the parallel in His call. The last parallel I want to point out this afternoon is Joseph called his brothers to come to him 
when they would rather have run away. He's just revealed his identity to them and they stand there with their guilt for what they had done to him all those years and they stand there more certain that he's now a very powerful man. He's apparently their brother. He's about to judge them and send them to their deaths. There they are in the nakedness of their sin and they all want to do this. All they want to do is really just get away. And he commands them to come to him. And they come in fear and trembling. And when they come, they find Joseph does not react to them in anger. When they come to Joseph, they're greeted with love. They're greeted by one who understands the plan of God. They're greeted by one who loves them in spite of what he's, they've done to him. Now I'm sure at that point he probably called every brother by his name and embraced them and renewed their fellowship. What a family reunion that must have been. And again, the, this parallels the Lord's call to sinners. God comes to the lost sinner and makes him aware of his lost condition. And the first reaction the sinner is fear. A lost person sometimes is, and often most times, is offended by a holy God. A lost person knows he deserves hell. The lost person is sure that God will reject them. How many times have we heard people say, Oh, I've sinned too much. My sin is too great. God would never save me. Yet the call comes, and it cannot be denied. And when the sinner comes to Jesus, he does not find an angry God. He finds instead a God who's satisfied by the death of his son at Calvary. And when the sinner comes, he's not cast out, but he's taken in. And when the sinner comes, nothing is like he expected it to be. For Jesus does not call us to come so he can judge us. He calls us to come so He can forgive us and to give us peace. He calls us to come so He can restore our fellowship with God. He calls us to come as we can experience His grace and His love and His peace. This afternoon, do you remember when God called you? I do. My young heart, I knew I was a sinner. That day when... I knew I had to get saved. I knew I'd, I was a sinner. Even as a nine-year-old boy. You think nine-year-old boys are sinners? They sure are. I think some two-year-old boys are some real sinners sometimes. Some two and three and four and five-year-olds. Boy, nine years, that's old. A lot of sin going on since they got born. But I knew I was a sinner. I remember raising my hand for salvation. When I came, he did not condemn me, he forgave me. He put a godly teacher in, in, uh, in my life to share with me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And she said, God so loved you, Daryl, And there in the nursery of that church, my life was changed. A lot of changing goes on in the nursery, but my life got changed. I trusted Christ as my Savior. 
maybe a couple of thoughts here as I close this afternoon. Like Joseph, Jesus usually calls in secret. No one knows what he's, uh, what he's doing in the hearts of those that he's calling. I'm thankful this afternoon for every profession of faith, but I must admit that I sometimes are concerned about high-pressure tactics used to get professions. If you've been aware and know here, I don't spend a long time trying to get you to come down to the altar or try to pressure you to, do, to get saved. I'm thankful for the salvations that, uh, uh, of the lives that we've seen. But I don't believe in high-pressure tactics. I'm sure some of those people do get saved, and I'm sure that far more get, are saved as God quietly works in people's hearts. You know, sometimes people get saved in very private places, in their homes. He calls us to come to him for forgiveness and restorations. Joseph's brothers had gone or done a, a great wrong, and yet he loved them. He called them in forgiveness, as it says here in verse 4. Joseph said unto his brethren, Come, come near to me, I pray you. And that's what Jesus does. He says, come. And we've done far worse to Jesus, but he calls us to himself in love and forgiveness and grace. We also know that he called them by their names. You go down to verse 14 and 15, it says, And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them, and after that his brethren talked with him. What a scene. When the voice of Jesus comes calling, it's not for your neighbor, it's not for your spouse, it's not for your friends, it's not for your brother or sister, it's for you. He calls individuals to come to him for salvation. Have you heard that call? Have you responded to it? Have you come to him? Now there are many things about my life I've forgotten. Many more things I'll forget before I leave this world, I probably. But there's one thing I do not think I will ever forget. I do not think I'll ever forget the day Jesus revealed himself to me. And basically he said, he said this, like Joseph said, I am Joseph. Jesus said, I am Jesus. At that moment, my sins came crashing down on me and I knew I was lost. And in that instant, even as a nine-year-old boy, I knew I had to get to him. And the past would be forgiven, it would be forgotten. He called and I came. He saved my soul and I'm so thankful for that this afternoon. Have you had a similar experience? I trust you have. And so, if so, then be ever so grateful. Praise the Lord. If not, you can come to him because he's calling. Let's pray. Father in heaven,